Good morning. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, here we are. I don't want to fall over, right? Okay. This is Psalm 84 for the director of music according to, uh-oh, to Giddish of the Sons of Korah, a song. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed ones. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So, Summer in the Psalms, here we are, uh, week two, going to look at Psalm 84 today, as was read and was sung about, you know, it's good, singing the Psalms is a good place to go, we talked about how um, how they can inform us, but they can also shape us, Um, they can help us to grow these texts. So, for those of you who don't know, or haven't noticed yet, I am not originally from this part of the world, (laughs) world, even (laughs) the world. Um, And I was born and raised in Scotland, as most of you know, the best place on earth. And um, here's a postcard for you all from me. And I actually never have imagined in a million years that I would end up living in Southern California, let alone being a pastor, let alone being a pastor in Southern California. But it seems that in the providence of God, somehow, I was always gradually making my way here. And I trust that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. But I often long, long, very deeply for the place where I am from, the place from where I came, uh, the place where I took my first breath of air. That is me. Notice my mother's strategically placed hand. The place where I took my first steps in this world on some really nice 1970s carpet. Uh, The place where I first felt the sun and the wind and the rain, and especially the latter two of those, the wind and the rain. The place that I first called home, the place where I was first placed in a family and recognized as a member of a family. Uh, And it's been a long time. I I left uh, Britain 24 years ago almost, and it's amazing how little time I've spent there in that time because life is busy. I have a family here and flights are expensive and and just organizing all that has always been hard. I haven't been there very often and never for more than a few weeks at a time. 
Um, and it never seems to be quite enough to satisfy the depth of the longing within me to experience that place and those people. And it's always usually on the last day that I get this sad feeling that I realize with a panic that I didn't enter in as deeply as I should have and there's things I didn't say and experiences I didn't yet do and it always feels incomplete. It almost feels like the longing that I have for Scotland and for people there, my family and, and the places there, um, is sort of this idealized, out-of-reach version of it that I don't ever really quite experience. So the longing, no matter if even if I went there for three months, I'm sure the last day I'd still feel this lack of, of being satisfied with what I'd experienced. It seems like I long for something that it seems impossible to experience in this world. And there's a song that I really love, which I think about all the time when I think about my family and think about the longing that I have. It's by a woman called Sarah Groves. And if you've not heard of her, I'd invite you to check out her music. I'm not sure she's doing a lot these days, but her songs are just very human. They're almost like Psalm-like. She's very honest. And she does a song called uh, Every Minute. And it's about longing. Uh, longing both for God, but for other people. And it says, and I wish all the people I love the most could gather in one place and know each other and love each other well. And I wish we could all go camping and lay beneath the stars and have nothing to do and stories to tell. I tell you, this song, I can't listen to it without crying. There's a longing in me that I can't seem to satisfy. It is always unsatisfied in some way, but, I, but it's there and it's real. And somehow I believe that perhaps there is some satisfaction of that to come. And it's surely a universal human experience, this longing. We long, we yearn, we ache for relationships, for places, maybe for security, for happiness. This morning, what do you most long for? Do you recognize the sense of longing? Does it resonate with you? Someone whom you love, do you long to be loved, to love yourself, accept yourself, to be respected, to recapture something you feel you've lost, or to find a different position, a better position in life, uh, to be free from pain, to get out of the rut of nine to five living paycheck to paycheck, or, or do you long for something more material? Do you long for status or money or power? Ultimately, I think what it is, it's like a desire to feel satisfied, to feel content, to feel complete. And surely that's kind of a measure of happiness when you feel satisfaction. Um, and clearly, uh, in this world today, despite constant innovation and a, and a wondrous uh, plentitude of things that can apparently satisfy us, is that we're very, very dissatisfied as a culture, as a society. As that, uh, those great theologians, Devo says, said, uh, I can't get no satisfaction. Some of you get that. Their cover of the Rolling Stones song, which I prefer because I'm weird. Um, and you know, we see the consequences of a lack of satisfaction like all around us and within ourselves of self-medication, of all kinds of addictions and depression, of desperate actions by desperate people to try and somehow find satisfaction. 
And it leads us to be so self-focused on satisfying ourselves that it deadens often increasingly our relationship with God and with the people around us. And it is a sad fact that the church is not immune. We just heard this psalm. This is our story. This is our prayer. And it, it's, it's got such longing, but also such a sense that it's possible to feel satisfied. And it has, a, it has consequences uh, if, if we believe that... that the Spirit indwells His people, and He has us in this world to bring Christ, His presence, then if we are in the same kind of dissatisfied mode, it's going to have consequences for the world around us. So Psalm 84 is a very ancient text. The first, last week we talked about the Psalms, and there's a disconnect with us because it's very old. It's from a very different culture. And there are so many opinions, as you often discover when you start looking at Bible texts, about what all the details refer to. There's lots of stuff in this text, and you can read 10 different commentaries and get 10 different opinions. So I want to just see what's plain, right? What's the most clear, plain, obvious stuff in this text? And one thing is so clear, uh, that this writer's heart is on his sleeve about his own longings, his yearnings, his desire to be satisfied. And he writes, my soul longs, my soul longs. Indeed, it faints. And he tells us for what he longs so strongly for is God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, not some stone idol of wood or metal or, or rock, but for the living God. And I think that this is a universal truth. And I think whether we are aware of it or not, this describes all of us, describes me, it describes you and every person who's ever lived, that we long, we have a longing for the living God, the creator. Uh, and it, and uh, it's really interesting because, you know, we think about creation, there is a, an order and a purpose meaning to creation. There is a natural order of things, things upon which we can depend. For example, a compass needle always points to the Boy Scouts. Good job. Unless you mess with it somehow. I know scientists here are going to go, well, actually, compass needles don't always point to north, and that's so... I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, okay? I'm keeping it basic here. We can talk afterwards. Okay, how about this one? Rivers always flow downhill. You can be pretty certain about that, right? There are repeating rhythms and cycles. Uh, the planets, they move in predictable ways through the cosmos. The seasons change. The tides, they rise and they fall. And animals and all kinds of creatures migrate, birds and butterflies and salmon, and they travel thousands of miles drawn by some mysterious force to the place of their birth. And all of these things are happening all at once, all around us in this world that God has created. And we talked about the concept of orientation and disorientation and new orientation. This is part of orientation. This is to say that there is a faithful creator who has set things in motion which have predictability about them because he made it that way. And the psalmist kind of catches on to this in Psalm 84. He talks about nature and he talks about birds to try and tell us something important. What he says is this, that even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, the Lord Almighty 
my King and my God. It's interesting that so many times in the Psalms, nature does, by its nature, metaphorically speaking, what human beings are supposed to do, which is to rejoice and praise their Creator. It talks about the hills and the trees and the mountains bursting forth with joy and celebration and praise. And now here he talks about these birds instinctively making their nests and raising their young close to where the place where God dwells. I think the carpenters are maybe thinking of this song, this psalm when they wrote, why do birds suddenly appear anytime you are near? Just like me, they long to be close to you. Why do birds suddenly appear just time you are near? Just like me, they long to be close to you. Melody's not the only singer in this building. <clears throat> Let's get the band back up. I didn't know that bit. I only know the chorus. So, so this writer is reflecting on something that, that there's a natural reality of this longing. He says, I long to be close to the living God. I yearn deep in my soul. And look, even the birds are making their nests close to the place where God dwells. I think that's the kind of longing that we each have within us. A longing for God, I think, is a basic fact of human life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, some of you guys have maybe read that. He wrote it during World War II. BBC Radio asked him to do some encouraging messages about, you know, what is, where can we find hope in this Christian story during such a dark time? And so he did a series of messages which became the book, Mere Christianity. And he wrote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I have longings within myself that nothing seems to satisfy. I remember when I was 10 years old, I've shared this story before, I think, maybe. Um, it's a very strong memory in my mind, and um, it has applied to a lot of different things when I think about God, I think about, especially about longing. And my family and I went to visit some relatives in the northern part of Wales. Hey, who knows where Wales is? Come on, you guys. It's that bit that sticks out of the side of England. Yes, Barbara knows. Um, terrible place. <laughs> Horrible people. No, lovely, lovely, lovely people. Good singers. Um, but while we were there, we went to visit a castle. It's called Harlech Castle. And, um, you know, I am not working for the British Tourist Agency, by the way. I realize I'm sharing a lot of pictures of Scotland and Ireland and Wales and whatever, right? But uh, I was, you know, I must have been about, did I say how old I was? Ten years old. There you go. And, you know, like ten-year-old boys do, I was exploring. I'm imagining all sorts of stuff. And, um, but as I was up on these battlements, I caught sight of something that drew my attention. And it was this little sliver of silver water way, way in the distance. And it was the Atlantic Ocean. And it was just way over there, just this little shiny, distant glimpse of water, way in the distance. And I, was, I saw it, and I was drawn to it, shining in the distance. So I took off to go and see it and visit it without telling anyone that that was my plan. Over hill and over dale, over golf course, in which I was shouted at by an angry man, and I zeroed in on my target, and I, and I got to uh, the seaside. 
of course, my parents were beside themselves with worry. They were like frantic. This actually happened quite a lot, but that was one of the earlier times when I disappeared without a word. And the entire Welsh police force was mobilized. Um, but I was completely oblivious to their concern. Uh, I was captivated, lost in wonder. I was wandering along the tideline, picking up shells and bits of driftwood, lost in my imagination. I saw something that captivated me, and it drew me towards it, and nothing else really seemed to matter at that point. Eventually, I did return home just after dark, just before they did call the police. But it reminds me of Jesus in the temple, the story when Jesus worried his parents too. You know, you think Jesus is perfect. You know, he was a bit of a brat at times. Can I say that? <clears throat> they were in Jerusalem. They were at a, one of the festivals, and his parents headed back with their entourage back to, to the hometown, and Jesus was missing. They suddenly realized, after several days, they realized Jesus was missing. The entire Judean police force was mobilized. And so they head back to Jerusalem and they, they search him and they find him. And they, where do they find him? They find him at the temple. They find him at the temple, standing amongst these leaders, these wise elders of the faith. And they're amazed by the questions that he's sharing and talking in the discussion that he's having. And, and when they find him, they ask him, what are you doing this to your parents, you know? Um, He's like, where did, where did you expect me to be? But at my father's house. He was captivated by the presence of God. Nothing else seemed to matter so much. I think children are far more intuitive than adults sometimes, or childlike people can be. You know, I used to think it was one of my worst qualities, but I was a dreamer and I had this imaginative thing. It was kind of not a, a good thing, apparently, but I think sometimes I, I wonder if it's maybe my best quality to, to retain that sense of wonder and curiosity that I can be captivated by something and deeply interested in something like that. Um, but luckily for us more intelligent, rational adults, <laughs> uh, the psalm gives plenty of reasons to want to be near God, to be in a relationship with God. Plenty of reasons. We can have an instinctive longing, but there's an objective desirability of this living God. And he lists them. He says, God is sublimely lovely. I tell you, there's no end to the stuff. These words do not cut it. God is eternal in all of his ways. He is the source. He is the, uh, the, the reality of all that is good. He is a source of strength. He says he's a sun and a shield. God is the giver of favor and honor. God is the one who doesn't hold back any good thing. And God is to be trusted, can be trusted. Just even the thing about the bird, he is the mighty king of angel armies and yet so gentle that the most vulnerable thing, a baby fledgling bird in a nest is safe in his care. And as we sang today, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I use that one, by the way, whenever I'm at the church and I open the door for somebody. And they go, oh, thanks. I say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper at the house of the Lord than dwell in tents of the wicked. I say it really, really fast. So he's saying that there's, there are consequences to, uh, to a, a realization of this longing and then a desire to satisfy this longing in a particular way. He uses this word blessed or blessed. As Barbara said, she asked me for permission to say blessed, and I was like, absolutely, I would say blessed too, right? Blessed are those who dwell in your house, they're ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, 
whose hearts are set in pilgrimage. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. And three times in the psalm uses this word blessed, and it really kind of means, uh, we'd say happy, but it, it's more than that. It's, it's really about a holistic, whole person well-being. And it's only ever used in the Old Testament to refer to a condition that people will have because of who God is, because of that relationship. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. We hear it, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who weep, those who mourn. Um, does that describe us? I think it does. Like, this is true. God has called you. He made you. He called you into relationship and you are blessed. You are complete in him. This is good news. So here's what we need to think, though. So why do I still feel so dissatisfied and long so much for so many things? I want to tell us today that that's normal. While we live on this earth, yes, you are blessed. But yes, we are long. We are those who long. So what are our longings all about? Are they all good? Are they all legitimate? My family and I have moved house quite a few times, haven't we, Rana? We don't have any more in us, by the way. So even if I get fired, we're not moving. <laughs> so, um, but in 2014, we moved from beautiful Orcas Island, Washington, to Olympia, Washington. Uh, to live in a little parsonage by a church, and I was going to attend seminary for the four years I was there. And we had over nine years of stuff accumulated, of course, on Orcas Island. You're like, only nine years? Um, and a, ki a, a kind friend who'd recently moved to the island offered to give us all their boxes, which was awesome. It's sometimes hard on an island to get enough boxes to pack your stuff in. We were like, you're awesome. But the problem was, all their boxes were already labeled for, like, their house. And, you know, we're kind of, like, in, getting our stuff done in a hurry. But consequently, when we arrived at our destination, which is right there, it was some confusion because we hadn't blocked out all of the... We knew their writing wasn't like our writing, right? But people helping us unload were not. So, of course, consequently... Um, People were taking things into the kitchen that should have been in the bedroom, etc., etc., bathroom stuff. Um, I think perhaps we mislabel our, our longings. Some of our longings are mislabeled. Either because they were previously, we clearly labeled them something, and we're, we're needing to change that and realize that there are other longings too. And so... You know, we think that what we want, what our longing is, is for the job or the relationship or the money or whatever it might be. And we find ourselves increasingly disappointed when it fails to give us the sense of satisfaction that we, are, we believe we've been promised by it. Now, we don't want to take this idea too far because the presence and love of God is mediated often by physical things, right? By a relationship, a friend. We're not saying that all of the physical stuff in the world is bad and I should have this just like separate experience with God. That's all I need. All of the things that we have are good. But we need to pay attention to the fact that the deepest longing that we have is the soul that we have crying out for the God who made us. 
And if we can understand the reality uh, of the longing for God that we have, perhaps we can begin to reorder our lives to find more satisfaction first in that relationship and in that longing. How do we do that? Get practical, Grant. This is all a million miles up in the air. Tell us what to do. Read your Bible. Pray. Okay. That's not bad, but the psalmist tells us. He said, blessed are those whose strength is in you. So blessed whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. This word pilgrimage is a really important and wonderful word for those of us who want to experience a deepening sense of satisfaction in God that can begin to take care of all the other longings that we have in our lives. And this is literally what this psalm is about. This psalm is about a procession of people going together, traveling toward Jerusalem, expressing the longing they have to be there again. And they're on a journey. Pilgrims. You know, uh, an early quote that I thought was really good, but also used to make me really guilty all the time, was by George Muller. Some of you may be familiar. He was an English guy. Did a lot of uh, orphanages and stuff. And one of the famous things about him is he never asked anyone for money, ever. Maybe it's been embellished, right? But that's what they say. He never did. He'd pray, God, you know my needs. And, and kind of miraculous things would happen. It doesn't happen to everyone. But George Muller was this man that, that this stuff happened to. But he said this thing, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. When I first heard that, you know, I was like, man, I should put that on a, on a like a, uh, you know, placard on my wall. But it kind of made me feel guilty too, because it's kind of like, you know, I have my stuff sporadic sometimes. I get up in the morning and if, you know, I, I find myself thinking about the day, what I got to do, and uh, we're out of coffee and the dog's bugging me for a walk and the cats are meowing and the, you know, whatever. And, and until I realized, looking at this, this, this week, this quote, it's what I ought to attend to. I'm really glad he put the word ought in there. You know, if he'd said, the first great and primary business that I attend to every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord, right? And I think this is the nature of a pilgrimage, right? It's a journey. You know, sometimes we can stand up here and say, like, okay, starting tomorrow, do this. And then I'll promise you that you're going to be perfectly satisfied. But the nature of a journey, uh, nature of a pilgrimage is, is truly, it's a journey. Uh, you are not today where you were few years ago, and you will not be in a few years where you are today. But it's also really, really important. The word ought is important. That's why we're doing the Psalms. We want to give ourselves a place, perhaps, where each day we can take even the Psalm that we have, Psalm 51. Melody's going to preach on that next week, and we all have copies of that, to sit and meditate on these words through the week. Because it's really, really important. God doesn't just want us to be satisfied in our longings for him so that we are satisfied. God wants us to be satisfied in him so that we have space and energy to be a blessing to the people around us in our lives. And I think that when the church is just like the world, trying to satisfy ourselves in all of the wrong ways, mislabeling all of our longings and just doing business as usual, I think it damages the community around us. There was a, some real tragedies that happened on Mount Everest. You guys maybe have heard of some of them. It's a book called Into Thin Air. Um, and and there's a, it's really become a big business, right? Climbing Mount Everest. I could probably do it. I'm so unfit. But if I could pay someone enough 
You know, they say, we'll get you up there, right? So you can check the box. If you, there's a lot of very wealthy people with very little climbing experience who've climbed Mount Everest. Because it's, you know, where else can you go higher on this earth than Mount Everest? But sadly, tragedies happen. And there's one particular story that always haunted me. It's about a man called David Sharp. And he was climbing alone. You know, on, it was a short season, so a lot of people are climbing up that mountain together. But David Sharp was climbing on his own, solo, and he was not very well equipped. And he got into trouble, fairly close to the summit. And he ended up huddling in a small cave, suffering from severe frostbite and hypothermia. And apparently, at least 40 people passed him on their way to the summit without offering any assistance. They were, their sights were set. And it was only nine hours later on the descent when there was some effort made to help him, but by then it was too late. And I think they were longing for the wrong thing. I think their hearts were so set on this goal, this longing of the prestige of climbing that mountain, that they were unable to attend to the needs of a fellow human being who was in desperate need right there beside the trail. And I think that's what this world is in many ways like. We see that evidence that we are we have these longings, they are real, they are natural, they are normal. And we are provided with so many ways that we would seek to satisfy them. And it causes us to fail to see God and fail to see the others around us. And it causes problems in our world. Satisfied people are unselfish people. Outward looking, self-giving. Imagine if we were more satisfied in that relationship with God and with one another. And from that central place of satisfaction, we would begin to have, and to a greater degree, eyes to see and ears to hear those around us who need our love and need to see what it looks like to be satisfied in God. Is the band gonna come up now and we're gonna, we're gonna worship God. You know, that sort of pilgrimage has all kinds of parts. There's, there's the pilgrimage of coming here on a Sunday morning. This is indeed a pilgrimage. We come with the intention of meeting with the living God together as a group. Uh, communion is, is part of our, our pilgrimage, that we have this moment where we commune with God and with one another together, taking this bread and this juice together. If you have one of these, um, we're going to use this now. If you don't have one, if you'd like to raise your hand, and uh, someone will bring you one. Darren, does anyone need one of these? Okay, down here, great. I wonder, was Jesus satisfied in God the Father? Was he satisfied? Does it, did his life reflect what we think it should look like when you are perfectly satisfied? His life was full of trouble. His life was full of challenges. Um, but he sought it as a priority. And he taught his people to do the same. And that's what we're doing right now. We're saying like, on my pilgrimage right now, I come to this place because God has invited me to it. And it's just interesting to me how, you know, the spiritual and the physical are so bound up in one another that, that Jesus didn't do some strange magic incantation, you know, 
to have this moment of connection with God and with other people. He took bread, you know? How often do you long for these particular crackers? <laughs> I never do. But, but I long for bread, you know, when it's right out of the oven. It's just, you can smell it. My wife makes amazing baguettes. Put your orders in. It's a very reasonable price. But when I smell that, I, I just long. It's, it's material. It's so physical. It's such a basic food type. And Jesus took this and, and the hunger of his disciples who'd been working all day to get the Passover meal ready and moving chairs around and doing whatever they were doing. And they got the, all the food ready. And then Jesus took bread and he gave it this whole new meaning and said, this physical thing for which you are hungry is, is about me and my body given for you. He said, I am the bread of life, and I will satisfy you, he says. So we take this in remembrance of him with thanksgiving. And another fundamental item in the first century, you know, was this wine. Um, and he took a cup, and again, Something we thirst, right? We thirst. Sometimes we have a longing that's physical. But he pointed them towards something, not to take away the need to satisfy physically our hunger, but to say that there is a greater and a higher longing that I will satisfy for you. Um, and you will be blessed by what he has done for us. We take the cup. Lord, we just offer our lives to you. We offer you our appetites. We offer you our hunger, our longings. We offer you the fact that we are not fully satisfied. And Lord, we rest in the fact that that is what it means, partly what it means to be human, that we long, we wrestle, we, we have desires. Oh, Lord, feed your people with yourself, with your presence. Satisfy the depths within us that can only be reached by you. You made us for yourself, for that relationship. And as a community, Lord, we pray that we would grow in that connection with you, with one another. That there be a powerful thing in this world that because we've found the bread and we've found the wine, we can direct others to the source of it, that they might be satisfied, that hunger might be fed. In Jesus' name, amen.